Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, September 20th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. On the heels of Ezekiel's action prophecy with the model of the siege of Jerusalem, the Lord gives another one to the prophet. This time, Ezekiel needs to cut his hair. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. It's always good to be here, Pastor Apple. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 5 today. Let's talk context first. What should we know about the prophet, his ministry, anything that'll help us with this chapter today? Yeah, so this chapter... Uh probably sent around 593 BC. Uh, Zedekiah is the remaining king in Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, the empire, empire, or excuse me, emperor of Babylon. And he's waging war all over the Near East, including uh, the Judean area. Ezekiel, the prophet uh, in Babylon, for those that are already sort of on the outs, uh, is doing his work. The, we are right on the imminent siege, destruction, an exile of Jerusalem. Um, Ezekiel gives a, a series of lessons warning the people of that coming destruction and hardships. Ezekiel, uh, he's a very dramatic uh, sort of prophet, he uses dramatic illustrations, visual aids, and performative arts to communicate his messages. You look at his stuff, and I think he's got most of us pastors today beat for his creative makeup tricks. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's uh, often. Um, stark and shocking, maybe severe imagery uh, in his messages, but I think that's to mirror the severity of the message he needs to deliver. Uh, God's people have been forsaking the Lord and his covenant for generations, and their sin can no longer go unpunished. So God is preparing to show his justice through pouring of his wrath onto Jerusalem. And that's uh, the unfortunate message that uh, Ezekiel is sent to give at this time. I think you're you're right that the the severity of the images that he gives, it, it communicates the, I mean, in addition to the message that the Lord actually gives, but it communicates the severity of the judgment that's going to come, the need for this to be heard. The Lord used these various action prophecies, or sometimes they're called symbolic actions, to get his people's attention. And so, I mean, he's had Ezekiel in the previous chapter, you know, build this little model of Jerusalem. Yeah. Ezekiel's been laying on his side for days on end as a part of that prophecy. Now he's got more to add to that. Certainly this would have gotten people's attention and not, not for the sake of just saying, wow, that guy's weird, <laughs> even though maybe that's what some people thought, but for the sake of, of getting the message across, that's, that's the point. It's not to, to draw attention to Ezekiel, but rather to draw attention to the word that Ezekiel is given to speak. And, and any, any pastor today who, who would use an object lesson uh, would do well, to, I think, to remember that. It's not about, you don't want people just to remember the object lesson. You want people to remember what the word is. And, and certainly, I think that's what Ezekiel is after here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think anytime we're, we're using various methods of delivery or, or, or something, if we're not serving the word, we're, we're mishandling it. And that's, yeah, I think Ezekiel is absolutely in that that camp, he's, he's using these means to show just how important and just how um, emphatic this prophecy from God is. So yeah, it's getting the people's attention, but so that they would pay attention, not so that they would just remember the hook. That's right. And and certainly these come from the Lord himself as well. Yeah. It's not that Ezekiel is going to cut his hair of his own volition. This is what the Lord commands him to do. So let's see what the Lord commands him to do. We're in Ezekiel yeah. chapter 5 beginning at the first verse this morning. This is the Lord speaking still. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. 
and a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city, and a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again, you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy, when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. That is Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, our text for today. Pastor Jones, the the text starts, Ezekiel gets addressed with that familiar way that the Lord addresses him in this book, Son of Man. And he tells him, take a sword, cut his hair, both his hair on his head and his beard. Now for Ezekiel, with this priestly background of his, this is a, a rather strange and perhaps an offensive command to Ezekiel. Give us some of the background of hair cutting in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually quite surprising that God would ask Ezekiel to shave his head and his, his beard because there are Levitical prohibitions against such a thing. Um, Leviticus 19.27 uh, states, you shall not round off uh, your hair uh, on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. And Leviticus 21.5 says, priests must not make all patches on their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or make any cuts on their bodies. Um, so this is something that is a no-no for the priest. I mean, it's, it's explicitly forbidden in the Levitical book, in the books of Moses, the law that God hands to his people, the ones that are going to intercede for the people, the, the Levites and the priests, they're not supposed to do this. Um, so it's, it's, it's shocking that God is telling him to do it in the first place. And then, um, you know, Oftentimes you'll see people like, well, why didn't he protest if he knows that this is wrong? And then especially in the previous, um, the previous chapter, when he is told to, to eat that meal roasted over dung, he says, I've never defiled myself, Lord. And, you know, he protests, he tries to, to get out of it. So we get a little bit of a disconnect there, uh, with, the the ordinances of the old Testament and then with, uh, Ezekiel's sort of response. So I'm not, I can't be positive. I can't be sure, but I think, um, you know, there's a couple of ways we could go with this. Either uh, he doesn't protest because, you know, this is a much more palatable dire directive, which I, I would agree with, I think. 
I'd rather shave than eat that meal that what he was instructed to. Or maybe he, at this point, has learned not to question God's instruction. That's probably the better way to go with it. Um, and then I think the bigger picture, why has God himself gone seemingly against what he had laid down for the priest to do? And I think that's the purpose uh, for what this message is going to be. The purpose of the shaving is going to supersede the priestly appearance. Um, shaving his head and shaving the beard, this is also a sign of mourning and grief. It is what is about to happen for those that are connected to God's people, God's nation, God's city, Jerusalem, as it's going to be destroyed. This is an unthinkable time of lamenting and, and loss. And so that is what needs to be communicated. And so I, I believe that's why um, he's asking him to shave his head. And uh, as far as where that symbol of, of mourning and grief comes from, I mean, that's in the Old Testament. In several places, I thought uh, a good one was Isaiah, because it's also I, Isaiah 15, verse 2. It says, he has gone up to the temple uh, and to Dibon, uh, to the high places to weep over Nebo and Medaba, Moab, Wales, on on every head is boldness. Every beard is shorn. So I think uh, this was a good one because it, they're weeping over cities again, right? They're weeping over places where people are experiencing loss. And that lines up with what's going to happen here. So in this case, the prophet would not only shave to express his, his grief of the siege and destruction and the exile of Jerusalem, um, but he's following God's direct instruction here. God's word for the prophet is burdened with such levels of sorrow that the prophet is told to shave off his hair and his beard to prepare for the mourning and sadness, regardless of his priestly status. Right. So why exactly Ezekiel doesn't talk back to God here? Why does he doesn't protest? That one you can't really answer so much, though I yeah. think you know the reasons you gave certainly are, are plausible as, as possibilities. This is a direct command from God, and so yeah. to obey it, is certainly the right move for the prophet. And I do think that the larger picture of why is this what the Lord gives Ezekiel is connected to that matter of mourning, which I think fits in very well with the previous chapter. Mm -hmm. The certainty of Jerusalem's destruction was definitely foretold in that model and the siege against it there in chapter four. And so what's going to be the response of Ezekiel and other faithful Israelites? They're going to mourn. And, and that shaving of the beard, the shaving of the head certainly would have been a part of that. And Ezekiel now is doing that mourning basically ahead of time for the people in exile, mourning over the destruction that the Lord is bringing. Now, the shaving of the hair is not the only part of this. That same hair then gets made to be a part of the message. And Ezekiel is told to do some pretty specific things with that hair that he cuts off. Uh, what does he do? Why does he do it? Yeah, so uh, the Lord is instructing the prophet to use now the very product of the demonstration, the hair, as a further symbol of what is going to happen. A third of the hair will be burned, a third will be cut with a sword, and a third will be scattered on the wind, uh, with a few strands being saved and tucked away in the rope of the prophet. The symbolism here is overt, and God will even tell us exactly what it means when we get to verse 12, uh, but the gist is the hair is the people. God is not going to spare them any longer. So a third of them will die in the siege of Jerusalem. A third will die to battle and bloodshed. Uh, a final third will be scattered throughout the world with only a small remnant remaining in the grace of God. Now, what's really kind of beautiful about this, this passage, I, I like that poetic touch of that remnant being tucked into the robes of the prophet because the prophets were the mouthpieces of the Lord. They delivered God's word to the people. They proclaimed God's love, his mercy, his salvation. So the word is the power by which God delivers his people. And so it seems fitting that the remnant's safety is found in the protection of those who would speak God's word. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point that this small amount, and, and you know, that's not the emphasis in this part, oh, that, that, that remnant theme is going to come out much more strongly in other places in Ezekiel, but its presence there is certainly noteworthy. And I do think that the the place where those few hairs are tucked, you know, rather than say burying him in the ground somewhere or mm -hmm. you know, putting them wherever he might have, 
putting them in the robe of the prophet, that the word is the refuge for that faithful remnant. I think is, I mean, that that's a fantastic point and, and certainly fitting with what is happening here in the book of Ezekiel. Now, even that remnant, though, it sounds like in verse four, they're going to experience suffering themselves in the fire. Yeah. Yeah, so there's the added note, right, that God will unsheathe the sword on those that are sent into the exile and even even those that were tucked away. Uh, it seems to sort of further underline that God is really in control. All this is in his hand, even if it might seem seem rough. <laughs> it's his will and it's his justice being carried out. The exile is simply going to be the means by which it's undertaken. Uh, and then it's also sort of an added level of God's plan that even those that were preserved will be subjected to the fire. Even those in exile that are faithful, uh, they will face suffering, they'll face struggle, they'll face hardship uh, from the consequences of sin in this world. Just like believers today, whether we're faithful or not, there's struggle, there's, there's brokenness, there's pain in this world. That's the consequence of sin. So God's work is always total, it's always complete, even if it's on his timeline and in you know a, an avenue of understanding that we can't quite see. Right. I mean, this is one thing that we've we've reflected on several times in in these books that are around this same time period, right before the exile, into the exile, that all of these things that are happening are happening at the Lord's direction. This yes. is His wrath against the people. He's the one bringing it about. And in, and in this text again, we have one of those rather horrific spots where, because of the Lord's wrath, I mean, people are even driven to cannibalism, as we'll see in in a little bit. That's a yeah. pretty hard thing for us, I think, to consider sometimes that this is the Lord's doing. He's the one behind this. And I think, you know, that that can end up functioning both ways in both law and gospel, that the Lord being behind it means I better repent because (laughs) this is his wrath against my sin. And the only recourse is to repent. And then also to function as gospel, to recognize, you know, when I find myself in exile there with Ezekiel and these other these other exiles, to know that the Lord does remain the Lord, he is the one directing events for his purposes, ends up being, at least as I consider the total counsel of his word, there is gospel there, there is promise there, because I know he's in charge, and he's going to do what he said, he's going to fulfill his promises. And so even in a you know, text like this, where on the surface, it, it seems all very frightening, and we should repent at that, there is that that way that the gospel does come in as well when we see God's faithfulness to do his word. Yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. We know sin is, is always going to be present in our lives, uh, on this side of eternity. And so knowing that God has even sort of the, the punishment angle in his control and his plan, uh, should be comforting for us, not because, oh, it means what we do doesn't matter, but because he's given us the means by which to return to his grace, right? Repent. We repent. We humble ourselves. We we seek his mercy. Uh, and that is all already provided and planned out and mapped out for us. As the text continues into verse five, we've gone through the actions. Ezekiel's done the actions, and now the Lord's going to do some interpreting. This is what the actions mean. And he starts by pointing out, again, the city of Jerusalem. He says, this is Jerusalem. I've set her in the center of the nations. What what does the Lord mean when he says Jerusalem is at the center of the nations? Yeah, yeah. So he says, this is Jerusalem. Uh, some com- commentators think maybe he's pointing at the, the model he made, the brick uh, from previously, that's a possibility um, for us. That what's important is he calls it the center of the nations. Uh, he set them there. We can make an awful lot of this statement. Um, I, I don't think you can make a real strong argument for it being literally true as far as landmass goes. Uh, but I suppose you know culturally, from a very p- particular time in history, uh, it's probably possible as far as where uh, people were located and 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 how culture and society worked. But I think at that time, geopolitically, you get a little bit more more traction, right? The area served as a necessary throughway from Africa to the Near East and into Eurasia. Uh, there were major trade routes through Canaan and Judea for Egypt, Mesopotamia, Syria, Babylon, and all the other powers of the ancient world. Um, but again, that's sort of limited to a specific time in history. While there's always, you know, major things going on there today, it's not quite at the same level as far as most people's lives are concerned. 
So I think the truer sense of the centrality of Jerusalem has to be its theological center, centeredness or centeredness, whatever. <laughs> um, Jerusalem is the capital city of the nation of God's people. It is the location where God chose to dwell. It is through this city, this nation, this people that God would send his son as the Messiah to rescue all of mankind. It was from Jerusalem where the promise of the Messiah would originate and radiate outward to the whole earth. It was Jerusalem who was told to be the city on the hill, the light to the nations. They were the center of the world as God placed the foundation and origin of his worldwide promise of hope and salvation in their midst. Uh, it was in Jerusalem where Christ died for the sins of all the world, and it was in Jerusalem where he rose from the dead, conquering death for all mankind. That was Jerusalem's place as the center of the world. Now, and now, um, they're going to serve as the center of the world as all the nations around them would see the demonstration God's wrath and judgment carried out upon that. It's a big switch. Yeah, and that's we see that throughout these prophets who are right around this same time period where this city, this place where God had you know placed His name there, chosen these people to have His word because of their rebellion against Him, everything gets turned on its head, and this you know what should have been a city on a hill as a light to the nations, showing. This is what the worship of the true God looks like. This is yes. what the word of the true God is. Instead, they get to see who the true God is, not through that message of salvation, at least not at the moment, but through the destruction that happens. Yeah. This is what this is what happens when a people has the word of God, when a people has the the statutes and the covenant of the Lord. And they don't listen and they choose other gods. This is the destruction that happens. And so it is, I mean, it it does end up serving the same purposes in terms of showing who the Lord is, but the Lord ends up showing who he is through the judgment rather than through the salvation. Now, again, as you pointed out, that's going to come because, you know, ultimately this theological reasoning of, of Jerusalem being the center is going to find its fulfillment in Christ. Yes. And, and, and that's where, I mean, I think maybe this is one of the gospel connections we can make from this text is that in Christ, we see all of that judgment of God upon sin, poured out not upon sinners, but upon Christ, the the perfect sinless son of God, he takes all of that. And that's really where you start to see Jerusalem as the, the center. And then, of course, that expands outward to the whole world. This, this message of salvation that you see in Christ goes from Jerusalem into the world. I mean, that's, that's the book of Acts in a nutshell. And then as, you know, the history of the church continues. But I think, you know, a text like this where we, we see a judgment on the people of God. This this is going to point us to how the Lord pours that judgment out ultimately on Christ for the sake of us sinners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, but yes, <laughs> that's, right. uh, that's that's where we will ultimately go with this text. I think it's where we have to go with this text um, to to see God's awesome power demonstrated um, would be a, a sobering and humbling experience for for anyone. And then to see and realize that he is showing this because that's ultimately what's going to be passed over us and placed onto the Messiah. Um, that's what his entire history with the people is going to be about. It's what at this time it's pointing forward to. It's what we continue to point back to because it is the pivot point of all history. Hmm. Um, and, and just kind of going back to Israel being the, the center and sort of the, the demonstration here for all the nations. Um, you know, there's some language in here. It says, well, it, it sounds like God's punishing them more than he would the other nations. Well, it's, it's not so much that as they were given so much more, right? Israel was the nation to whom God has personally revealed himself. It was only this one nation who were trusted with God's word. They alone had the commandments and the law of God. Going back to the, you know, the covenant with Abraham, God said that all nations were supposed to be blessed through his descendants. They were supposed to be the example for the pagans, for the Gentiles, for all the nations of what it meant to live as God's people. And if they lived faithfully as God's people, again, as the light of the nations, they would be the blessing of divine peace and hope for the whole earth. But um, because they were God's chosen people, 
And now they had those special responsibilities among the nations of the earth and they had failed to be that people. They failed to, to uphold God's law and they slide continually into worshiping the false gods and the vain deities and following the other nations. They're breaking God's covenant, right? that formal promise he had made with them. So he's, be they're betraying his relationship with them and neglecting that valuable gift and identity that they have as the Lord's chosen people. They're indistinguishable now from, uh, all the other nations around them. The other nations have natural law only, and they can't even, the people of Jerusalem can't even keep the natural law anymore. They've, they've broken the natural law as well as all these things that were specially revealed and specially given to them. They're failing to keep all of it. Um, like we, we all do, right? We all failed the natural law, but they were supposed to be that, that example for everybody. But now they're, they're practicing wickedness and rejecting far more than any of the other nations had been entrusted with. So it goes directly again to, you know, to go back to Jesus's instruction, sort of framing these sorts of things. When we see God's wrath, uh, I, I'm reminded of Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they trusted much, they will demand the more. Uh, that's, that's what God's doing here. Yeah, he had given his word, his covenant to his people. They had rejected it, and now they are receiving the covenant curses because of that, the ones that the Lord promised. That's what Ezekiel is preaching, and we're going to keep looking at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking Ezekiel chapter 5 with Pastor Rick Jones. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 20th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Rick Jones. He is chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, we were talking about the people of Israel set as a light to the nations among the peoples. Theologically, this is the center of the world, but they have rejected the Lord's word. And in that sense, have found themselves under harsher judgment than the nations of the world, because they've, they've even been worse than the nations of the world, which <laughs> may sound strange to us, but they, that's, they've rejected what the Lord has given. And, and even in ways that perhaps the other nations of the world might not, which is saying quite something, you know, where, where it says there in verse seven, where the Lord says that the people of Israel, they've not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. I'm reminded of, of how St. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 5, where, where he tells the Corinthian church that they're tolerating an evil that's not even tolerated among the pagans. And, and it sounds like the people of Israel are having that same problem here in Ezekiel chapter five, that they're, you know, they're rejecting even those things that you can know, as you said, based on natural law, mm -hmm. the people of Israel are rejecting those things that even the pagan nations around them would recognize, oh, that's really bad and we shouldn't do that. So that's, <laughs> that's how far the people of Israel have fallen in the days of Ezekiel. And so the Lord has very strong language for them in verse eight. And again, we, we come back to that theme that we brought up earlier where the Lord says, I, even I am against you, which is maybe a little awkward in English, but I do think it, it conveys pretty accurately the emphasis that the Lord is giving there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, extremely emphatic. You know, they're supposed to have that special relationship with God. God is on their side. Now he's saying, yeah, but even I'm against you. That's how bad this is. Now God has that personal relationship with Jerusalem. And so their idolatry and disregard for his word and his promises. It's a personal insult. Uh, as such, he makes the justice personal too. The language used for uh, what he's going to do here, the executing of his judgments um, in verse eight, and then again in verse 10 and verse 15, 
it's reminiscent of the the plagues that were visited or executed on Egypt. It's the same type of judgment. The stubborn and hardened hearts of Jerusalem are, I think, being shown to be the same as that of Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. God executed his justice on Egypt, right? He showed his wonders, and now he's going to do the same on Jerusalem. Well, and, you know, you think about the Exodus and everything that happens prior to it with the plagues, how often the Lord t- wants Pharaoh to know that he is the Lord, he is the one true God, and not Pharaoh, not the idols of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I do think the people of Israel have put themselves in that same position because they have not recognized who the one true God is. I mean, all of this ends up going back to their idolatry over and over again. And and how often the Lord, in not only in this chapter, but in all of Ezekiel, will say, you know, I am the Lord, I have spoken, then they will know that I am the Lord. That phrase yeah. gets repeated over and over in, in Ezekiel, which I do think harkens back to what, what happened with the plagues in Egypt. That, that the Lord wanted the Egyptians to know who the true God is. And he certainly wants his own people to know who the true God is. I mean, it, it really seems that we get this from Jeremiah, and I think we get it from Ezekiel as well. It seems that the people just sort of were taking that for granted. They were presuming upon these promises that God had made just to allow themselves to do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we could see all sorts of correlations, I think, to, to some things we see today. Um, you know, they, they've almost, they've almost turned it into their status with God, right? As the chosen people, it's that, um, therapeutic superstitious deism, right? We, we sometimes hear words like that around, um, it's a false sense of security, really. They, they think nothing can happen to them if they live in God's holy city, right? Jerusalem is that, that golden gem of, of, of God. And if you live in Jerusalem, you live under God's blessing. Um, I think of people today that, uh, you know, they, they feel safe and right with God because they have a Bible on their shelf. They may never read that Bible. They may never interact or engage with God's word of salvation. That's proclaimed on every page of the Bible, but they feel better and safe because they have God's book in their home. It's superstitious, magical, divine mercy, but it, it, it's false. Um, it's an idolatry of emotional comfort is, is really all it is. Uh, it feels like that's what the people of Jerusalem were doing. They were just regular idolaters, no different from any of the other sinful Gentiles around them. They were sinners with no regard for God. And, and unfortunately, sin must be punished. God's mercy is now run out for them. It's run out for Jerusalem. God has chosen this city as his earthly dwelling place, but now that that's over. They've, they've forsaken him. They've turned their backs on him, even while he's in their midst. So he has to do the same. Uh, the city had never, in the, in the prophecy here, he says, I'm going to do something that I've never done before and something I'm never going to do again. Um, and that's destroy the city. Jerusalem has not been destroyed. Um, the other part of the kingdom has been sent into exile. There's, there's other people around um, from Judea that have been sent into exile, but Jerusalem itself has not fallen. And so that's what's going to happen now. The people would, would see the cost of their idolatry, their faithless betrayal trail of, of their God, the sinful disgrace or disregard for, from generation to generation. Um, they disregarded God's blessing and his care. It, it, so that was unthinkable. So now unthinkable sin is going to require unthinkable punishment. Jerusalem, God's splendid jewel, would have to be destroyed. And it's it's going to be really ugly. And we, we've yes. talked about this uh, on Sharper Iron, and it's because it comes up in multiple places in these, you know, again, pre-exilic, exilic prophets, that the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem was not a happy time. It was, I mean, it was absolutely horrible. We saw it in the Book of Lamentations. We've seen it here in Ezekiel already, and it comes up very vividly here. In verse 10, we, we have talk of cannibalism, which to think of cannibalism among, among the people of God is that's absolutely horrifying, but that's what that was what happened as a result of the people's idolatry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's obviously out of desperation during a siege. It foretells just how awful the event will be, and it actually is a fulfillment of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 28. Um, there's a section, uh, verses 53 through 57, that reads like this. 
Um, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give any of them or give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you at all your towns, the most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, and to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children, whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. It's awful. It's just awful. Um, but that's what siege warfare did, right? It's, it's incredibly brutal. It's desperate. It's bleak. There are lots of ways to siege a city, um, but the basic idea is the attacking army surrounds the city it wants to capture or control and cuts off all routes of trade and supply and especially water. Armies might use ladders, battering rams, tunnels under the walls, or even earthen mounds uh, to try to gain control. And the mounds uh, used by um, Sennacherib at Lachish in 701 BC are still visible today. They do all sorts of digs and excavations out there. And in the annals of Sennacherib, and they described several different means and strategies that they employed, even against other Judean cities during Hezekiah's reign. Uh, the attacking army either used enough force to make the city surrender, or they'd wear them down until they could no longer withstand the advancing army. This was just awful. And it happened through prolonged loss of soldiers and civilians and eventually starvation of the city. Hence the, the fathers eating sons and sons eating fathers. It's, it's absolutely desperate. It is the worst sort of existence you can think of. Um, but that is what is going to happen to Jerusalem. And, and again, this is one of those places where, I mean, certainly we're horrified by this and the, mm-hmm. the shock factor is off the charts here. But the Lord's not saying this to his people just to shock them, but ultimately, again, to to show them why this is happening to yes. them. And and as we've said several times, this is the Lord's doing. And that emphasis comes through loud and clear in these verses as well. Yeah. So right in the next section here, the Lord is laying out clearly why the impending siege, destruction, and bloodshed is coming. It is the direct result of the people's sinful idolatry. The Bible often describes idolatry as adultery. Uh, and likewise, covenant language is, is similar to uh, marriage language. So it's just showing that God is in a deep, committed, and personal relationship with his people. So when they forsake that relationship, it is a personal insult to God that is the spiritual and emotional equivalent of adultery. The people have been whoring after other gods, idols, and, and, and God's deep love is, is deeply offended here. This is a personal affront to his steadfast, gracious, enduring love that he has for his people, that he's been showing them from the very beginning. And he will have a personal stake in their punishment, in the justice that must be, uh, must be made. So he shows that in the repetitive use of the first person verbs as he demonstrates his personal connection in the plan, right? I will scatter as I live. I will withdraw. I will have no pity. And he over and over, right? I will do this. Even I am against you. I have spoken. And he's putting, putting that personal relationship on it. And he's showing them why, because they have personally offended him with their, their sinfulness. Right. I mean, this, this idolatry is, is terrible. And it is that marriage language that really, you know, I think that really catches our eye. And and we're going to see that come up in Ezekiel as well. He's going to use some really vivid imagery later in his book that describes the idolatry of the people of Israel as an adultery. And and certainly it's here. And, And what's striking, you know, as the Lord interprets what Ezekiel has done 
in verse 12, and he mentions, you know, the third part, the three different parts of the Mm -hmm. hairs, three different parts of the people. Again, that remnant that's there in Ezekiel's cloak is there, but they don't get mentioned here again, which I think, I mean, just goes to show how serious, how severe the judgment that the Lord is bringing. It's not that he's forgotten about the remnant, but that that theme is not being emphasized here by Ezekiel. It is the judgment that's coming through loud and clear. Yeah. And so as he, and I guess maybe we should say before we get to him actually explaining very clearly what these three sections of hair are, um, the nature of, of his wrath, right? The, the, the personal nature of the affront that the sin has caused, but then what happens? How does the wrath actually be bestowed? It's, it's, it's the lack of God's now involvement in their lives or the lack of connection to him, right? It's, it's not just that he has an active role here. It's, it's that the wrath comes from his withdrawal. He removes his presence from Jerusalem. He removes his, his protection from the people. He removes himself from their ongoing care. The result will be the siege, the conquest and exile. God is choosing not to show pity or mercy on his people because they have forsaken his love. Now, again, this might sound harsh, but really it is just showing how faithful God is to his promise. He promises justice, and this is the justice that their profound sin requires. And then he moves into explaining how it's going to happen. Right? The punishment described in verse 12 is the direct interpretation of what Ezekiel has already acted out with shaving his hair uh, in verse 2. Uh, a third will die in the siege, a third will, will die from battle and violence from the invading armies, and a third will be sent into exile. And yeah, the remnant isn't, isn't mentioned explicitly here. Uh, so we kind of hold on to that first section to, to bring a glimmer of that hope back. Um, and then as we move into the next section, it sort of just reiterates everything that we've seen and really uh, puts it firmly back into the minds of those that would hear Ezekiel, what is happening and why. Right. Ezekiel, I mean, this is one of his characteristics is that he does repeat himself very often. But when the <laughs> Lord takes the time to repeat himself, we should take the time to listen. It's probably very important. So what what is in that last section? How does Ezekiel reiterate this message of judgment and what's going to happen in the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem? Yeah. Yeah. So again, they, they've sinned against God and he's he is personally now about to deliver his his justice through the Babylonians. And so they the despair and the devastation they will be subjected to is the same despair and devastation that their sinful unfaithfulness has brought upon God's heart, his covenant love with them. So we're reminded, I think, um, of Jesus's words about much being demanded uh, from those to whom much was given. Or maybe we even hear a different piece of advice, right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. If Jerusalem, the once proud center of God's earthly kingdom, uh, has lived this sinfully for so long, they are now going to be laid to waste. The earthly beacon is set as the example of God's blessing, uh, would now be turned into an object lesson as an example of God's justice. This will happen in the sight of all the nations. And there's a, a sort of fourfold description of what this judgment will be to onlookers: a reproach, a taunt, a warning, and a horror. Uh, again, sort of a poetic emphasis on Jerusalem's plight here. This is how the other nations will now see them. The people of God were entrusted with great faithfulness from God, and now in the face of great sinfulness on their part, God's great justice will be a moment of great wrath. Ezekiel's message is a promise and a warning that God will be faithful in love as well as awe. Yeah, that that faithfulness of God. I, I mean, it's hard. For, I think we we hear that word faithfulness, and we think, oh, he's going to keep his promises. Well, that also means he's going to keep the promises of judgment, and yes. and that's certainly what's what's in view here. One one thing before we kind of reflect on the the text as a whole, I mean, because this is a, a text that is full of God's judgment, mm-hmm. and so there's it's perhaps hard to to see some to see much gospel at all in here. But I think. I think in verse 13 there's there's at least a hint of the gospel that that the matter that the Lord says my anger will spend itself mm-hmm. I'll satisfy that anger I I think that the at least the hint of the gospel that's there is that the Lord is going to bring the judgment but that time of judgment will come to an end 
that that even though it's going to be judgment and it's going to be awful, there's going to be all this terrible wrath, the fact that God says, I'm going to satisfy it or spend it, I think at least looks toward the end of the exile, toward a return from exile, uh, toward the end of all of those horrors. I, I, it reminded me of the way Isaiah begins his a prophecy concerning the the end of the exile in Isaiah chapter forty, where he you know he he says you know declare that her warfare is over that that the end of the wrath the end of the judgment has come, and I I think there's maybe again just a it's only a hint in this text, but I think <laughs> that's part of the hint in Ezekiel five is that the anger of the Lord while burning hot against the people there is an end to it and restoration comes after that. Yeah. And I think uh, we do well to remember the remnant in that case, uh, as you alluded to. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I get the vision of, we, we often talk about wrath as being poured out. Right? Well, uh, if it, you're pouring out a cup of wrath, right, as Jesus prays, if there's any other way this cup can be removed, let it be done, but your will be done, right? Uh, a cup only holds so much. And so, yes, I think the idea that it will be satisfied and it's God satisfying himself here. It's, it, it's only for a time and we get the promise that it is, it is an earthly time only, uh, which I think we should take great comfort in. Um, it is here in this sin broken reality where this anger, where this justice must be played out. And I think ultimately we're going to see that even this wrath, as it spends itself, he's going to, he's going to take care of that portion as well. Um, but that's sort of the final a uh, piece I want to end on. So I'll just kind of wrap it up. Certainly. Ezekiel was showing us. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just, just to, to, to respond real real briefly, yeah. even in, in Ezekiel's own ministry, you know, and, and we're only, this is only chapter five out of 48, you know, and, and he, as you mentioned at the very beginning, we're in about the year 593 here, you know, early yeah. in Ezekiel's ministry. That big transition is going to come in Ezekiel's ministry when Jerusalem does fall. And, and we won't hit that turning point in the book until you know several chapters down the road. But when that turning point comes, Ezekiel is going to begin to preach that good news, that gospel of restoration for the remnant. It's just, you know, here it's just a hint of it because that message of repentance needs to go out and, yes. and it needs yes. to be preached very clearly here. But you get these hints and that's where the book of Ezekiel will take us. And we will get there. It's it's just a hint of it now. So Pastor Jones, we got about five minutes here for final reflections. And and you know, again, how a, a text like this with all of its judgment is going to ultimately point us to our Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So again, Ezekiel showing us a God who is powerful, patient, and faithful in all things. So despite this text being a clear pronouncement of God's law uh, to be delivered upon the people as the Babylonian army be God's agents of wrath um, for all this sin. There also are some incredible promises of, of God's gospel grace. So I think uh, it is in even go looking to Ezekiel, right? He's the one that's told it to shave as the whole nation would be entering into mourning. All those that are left, right? Uh, whether they're in Jerusalem or already exiled, whether they're in Babylon already, they're all going to see what's going to happen. So Ezekiel being the one that, that sheaves, he's sort of a stand in for Jerusalem in, in the midst of the national grief and shame that's going to happen. And this points us to Christ as the stand in for humanity in our grief and shame over our sinful natures. The consequences earned by all are demonstrated or experienced by the individual sent with God's word. I think we're also given a glimpse of just how faithful God is as he has kept his covenant with love unconditionally, even in the face of the long history of the people's sin. However, he promises that he is a just God and that sin must be punished. So he puts off Jerusalem's comeuppance until his nature can stand it no longer. And then he demonstrates his faithfulness, again, by fulfilling that word of justice for sin. Uh, justice is a part of that faithfulness. And then even in the presence of, of God's righteous wrath, I think we're shown that he's still merciful with those sent into exile. God still promises a remnant will be preserved. Those strands of hair kept in, this, in the safety of the folds of the prophet's robes remind us that despite the consequences of sin in this life, there is a refuge in the word. Even though we are sinful, God is gracious, loving, and unforgiving. 
There are consequences in this life, but by faith, we have an eternity in God's hands. But ultimately, I think this narrative of God's judgment on Jerusalem shows us the judgment for all sin. God is steadfast and will always keep his promises, whether it is a promise of gospel or of law. It must be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. That's who God is. So here we see what the fulfillment of God's justice looks like. He is merciful. He is loving, but that means keeping his words. And though the fate of Jerusalem is bleak and horrible and devastating, it should not cause us to live in terror of God. Instead, it should remind us of the depths of his love as this wrath for sin was passed on to Jesus in our place. This prophecy of Ezekiel is, I think, a bold proclamation of the divine love of God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That, I think, is the gospel I need to take away from this, certainly, but hopefully we can all see in this this text. Certainly. And I think just to, to, to tie a bow on that, you know, the fact that we see in this text, God is faithful to what he says. He means what he says. He says what he means. Both of those things are true for God. And it's true of his judgment. And as we see it in a text like this in Ezekiel 5, that should drive us to repentance. Yes. God is serious when he speaks his word of law. He's not joking around. And when he lays out punishments for breaking his law, we should understand that he means that. He will keep those promises that judgment is coming. But if we see his faithfulness in those judgments, then we also should see that he's going to be faithful in the promises of deliverance and salvation. And that is where that picture of Jesus becomes so very clear, because these promises of judgment have ultimately been poured out, not fully on Jerusalem, but finally on Jesus. What happened to Jerusalem in 587 BC, which happened according to the word the Lord spoke to Ezekiel, that was meant as a precursor to what the Lord did on that greater day on Good Friday, when he poured out his wrath completely on his own son, Jesus. And there, you know, that, that anger of God, that fury of God was spent and satisfied so that now all who are in Jesus, they have the promise of salvation. And that promise, we know God keeps it because we've seen him do that throughout history. He's been true to his word of judgment. That means he's going to be true to his word of promise as well. And, and that is how Ezekiel 5 does point us toward the gospel. Even if it's not clearly, that promise isn't made clearly in this chapter, the fact that we see God keeping those promises and then pouring out that wrath on his son, Jesus, there's the gospel, even through a chapter like Ezekiel 5. So Pastor Jones, Pastor Rick Jones Mm -hmm. serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota, helping us today, Ezekiel 5 verses 1 to 17. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.